Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Whiskey, scotch, Irish, absinthe, and moonshine, among others, are the topics of this edition of Radio Curious. Our guest is Crispin Kane, an artisan liqueur maker, distiller, and co-owner of Greenway Distillers and American Craft Whiskey. Based in Redwood Valley, California, about 10 miles north of the Radio Curious studios. We met in Kane's office at the Greenway Distillery on October 27, 2017, and began our visit by sampling some of his most tasty products. After a few sips, I turned on the recorder and asked Crispin Kane to explain the distilling process. What we're doing in distilling, and we're talking about distilling spirits, is we are creating an extract of the finest essence of plant materials that have been fermented. And if that's grapes or grain or what have you, um, the objective is to create something that's uh, um, very pure, um, captures the flavor, and becomes pleasant to consume or use in cooking. That's what you mean by creating the essence. Yes. Uh, how do you do that? Well, let's talk about whiskey. We start by malting grain, choosing good grain and malting it by sprouting it and then toasting it. And then the grain is laudered. It's put into uh, hot water, essentially. And the um, remainder of the starches are turned into sugar. And then the grains are, are placed in hot water. And the sugars and maltose and things come out of the grain and make make the water a brown color like beer then the grain and the you know enriched liquid are separated it's called a wort separated and the liquid has enzymes added and yeast added and the yeast consumes all the fermentable sugars and creates alcohol and when the yeast is done with its job we place the liquid in the still and turn on the fire and the still is a pot still where it's enclosed except for a pipe that captures all the steam coming off the top of the liquid inside the pot. Alcohol boils at a temperature lower than, than water. I think it's about 173.1 degrees Fahrenheit. And so a mixture of alcohol and water will come to a boil at a lower temperature than water. And so we turn on the fire and bring it up to that boil, and then we turn it down till it just simmers. And that creates a rich essence of flavors and alcohol that proceeds into the pipe. And the pipe leads to what we call a condenser. This is all made of copper. The pipe stays closed as it passes through the condenser, and the condenser is full of cold water. So the steam inside the pipe is uh, forced to condense by the temperature, and it becomes a liquid again. And, and the alcohol content of that liquor is, is what? 
At that point, in the pot still, the alcohol content of the liquor is between 25 and 35%. And we save that, that liquid until we have enough. We'll do several first distillations, because what I'm describing is a first distillation. And we save the liquid until we have enough to fill the still again. You can take two or three or four runs, as we say. And in the second distillation, we extract uh, the heart of the distillation, and it will be about 70% alcohol when we're done. Why is the second distillation more potent? When we essentially make wine or malt wine uh, to distill, we will have an alcohol content between 8 and 10%. We distill once, and we've we recovered about a third of the volume of the pot in the first distillation. So if there were 600 gallons, we get 200 at 25 to 35. And so when we distill again, it's concentrating the alcohol because we're boiling it and simmering it in such a way that mostly alcohol is boiling and not water. Now, what you're distilling in the second distillation mm -hmm. is the fluid that you were you distilled in the first distillation. Correct. And what remained in the pot is not part of it. Right. Okay. What remains in the pot is very acidic, and um, it, it uh, goes into a uh, water waste treatment system. It doesn't. It's not used to water the daisies. Eventually, it is. Yep. Okay. So, what happens in the second distillation? In the second distillation, um, the um, fractions are very clear. There is heads and heart and tails. And the heads um, have incredibly wonderful smells. There's lots of esters and ether and higher alcohols. And there could even, if there's some oxidation in the wine, there could even be acetone and acetate. And these things that I'm describing, some of them are not good for us. They're much more poison than just you know, ethanol. But they're very distinct. And if we are doing our job correctly and the fire set right and everything is perfect, then that head fraction will be a small percentage. And the difference between the head and the heart is something that was taught to me by Hubert Germain Robin, my, my, my master at the still, while I was his assistant. And so by appearance and smell, we decide when the heads have stopped and it is now the heart. And what happens, Barry, is one of the most wonderful things. Um, the, the smell of acetate, the smell of ether, all of that disappears. And suddenly you get a smell that is incredibly floral and candy-like and very clean. And or, or we're taught that it's clean. And um, uh, it's very distinct, the difference. When you say we're taught that it's clean, mm -hmm. it's not self-evident? Well, I would say that it is, but the use of the word and the perception of it, I think, is, um, is relative. I mean, after all, alcohol is a poison. When I bottle this thing, there's a warning label on it. No matter how good any of us think it is, it's still, you put something living in it and it dies. But I would tell you that there's no methanol present at, the, at that point. And that's, you know, methanol is a higher alcohol that's poisonous and is naturally occurring. But because of the way we're distilling, we eliminate methanol. And we eliminate these, these um, more volatile compounds that, uh, well, are even more bad for you than ethanol. 
So we're trying to make a fine, fine poison. Let's just put it that way. And that's the objective. And so by using the fire very judiciously, there are large organic molecules that stay in the pot, acids and such. We want some degree of acidity. But in the end, when you take the heart of that distillation, which the French would call eau de vie, or the Irish would call whiskey bar, uh, the water of life, when you take a sample of that and allow all the alcohol to evaporate away, and you put your finger in the remaining liquid and you taste it on your tongue, it should taste like pure water, like nothing. And that's when we know it's right. If it's, when the whiskey is right. Yep, yep. And or whatever it is that Whatever it is that we're distilling. And so we want that to be very clean. So yes, it is in fact clean. And, um, and that's you know, one, of the, uh, one of the objectives. You say using the fire very judiciously. Mm. So uh, what does that mean judiciously? Okay, so um, we only want to use just enough and not too much. Too much means that more water is boiling and becoming vapor than we'd like and all the compounds that will come with it. And so what we're trying to do is, is have the fire set so that we're just boiling alcohol and a little bit more. And that's at the temperature of uh, 170.1? Well, 173.1 is, is where pure ethanol would boil. Okay, but we have a mixture of both ethanol and water in there. Uh, in in inside the pot, and so we are running slightly above the boiling point of alcohol, yet below the boiling point of water. So we're using propane to fire the still, and there's a gauge that measures the gas pressure in millibars. And so we've become accustomed to the readings in millibars and the level of the fire under the pot. And so we have precise settings for that gas as time goes by. Through the course of the day that the distillation is running, the boiling point's constantly going up because more alcohol's leaving and there's less alcohol in the pot. And so periodically we have to adjust the fire up. And by uh, following, a, um, following certain protocols, we allow ourselves to raise the fire without going too far. We're visiting with Crispin Kane, an artisan liqueur maker, distiller, and co-owner of Greenway Distillers and American Craft Whiskey. Based in Redwood Valley, California, about 10 miles north of the Radio Curious Studios. I'm Barry Vogel. Uh, Crispin, you have specialized in certain flavors, and particularly your focus now is on... uh, a rose liqueur. Can you share with us uh, something about the rose liqueur, what it tastes like, and what it smells like in words using the sense of sound as opposed to the sense of taste for our listeners? Certainly, certainly. So our, um, our rose liqueur, Crispin's Rose, is made from spirits of apples and honey and fresh rose petals. And my um, dear partner, Tamar Kay, and I spent several years deciding which roses were right for rose liqueur. Um, they had to be roses that not only smell good, but taste good. Not soapy, not perfumey, but um, flavorful. When you say taste good, mm. do you actually chew the uh, rose petal? 
oh yeah, rose petals are edible and sometimes appear in salads. And so I can give examples, like uh, Don Juan was a good choice, because Don Juan is a red rose that smells like chocolate and raspberries, and kind of tastes like it too. And it was, a, it was a good choice. There's over 17 different roses in our rose liqueur. It smells um, rosy and fruity. It tastes like a rose smells without being soapy or perfumey. It's really wonderful. Um, the spirits extract all the flavor and color out of the rose petals. So the spirits start clear as rainwater, but end up becoming a dark reddish amber color with the roses. Is the uh, fluid of the liqueur more viscous than water? Um, it's possible. And, and because, some liqueurs are? Uh, possible. Most liqueurs are somewhere between uh, 15 and 20% sugar. And what we did with Crispin's Rose, um, because it is sweetened, is we looked for a balance between the astringencies of the alcohol in the roses and the sweetness of sugar. And so... Our rose liqueur is only 8% sugar. It's about half the sweet of something like Grand Monnier. And so whereas it's probably more viscous than water, it's because alcohol's thinner, it's kind of close. What are some of the other drinks or liquors that come out of your still? We are also making uh, Greenway Distillers Absinthe Superior, and it's a wonderful absinthe. Um, I started with a centuries-old recipe from Switzerland, and we've fairly remain true to the recipe with its um, uh, artemisia absinthium and lemon balm and hyssop and a long list of other herbs, anise and mint and fennel that, that are in there for flavor. So you mix them all in the original fluid yeah. that you then bring to the 173.1 temperature. So to make the absinthe, I uh, uh, make a wine of apples, apple juice and honey. I double distill that to create alcohol at 70%. I add rainwater, and then uh, I put the spirits in rainwater and all the herbs into a still, and I distill it again. Uh, let's talk about absinthe for a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, it was banned prior to the Prohibition in yes. the United States. Uh, there was something that stirred people up a little more about it. What was the, what's the background? Well, in um, 1875, there was a phylloxera outbreak in France, which killed all the wine grapes. And the alternative was, was liqueurs and other concoctions. People began to make liqueurs and, um, and other concoctions from any other source of fruit available uh, or alcohol available, uh, apples, potatoes, tomatoes, etc. And um, the French Foreign Legion was fed absinthe in Africa as a cure for one disease or another. And they, they brought it back with them and made it very popular. Many, many people drank lots and lots of absinthe. Uh, Vincent van Gogh in his diary was reported to be drinking five-fifths, that's a gallon of absinthe a day. That's, he, that's quite a bit. Yeah. More than most people, more than the water that most people drink now. That's right. It's just utterly amazing. And they were probably blending that with water. So from morning till night, he was drinking absinthe. And so there were many excesses. There was excesses in its consumption excesses in all the fun people were having with it, and there were excesses in terms of production. There were producers that were unscrupulous and mass-producing absinthe, and some recipes have it colored green, and normally that's with the herbs being added back to it. Sometimes that's done. Well, 
they began adding things like cupric salts and uh, laudanum and other things. And eventually, as um, governments will, when people are having too much fun, they'll, they'll put an end to the party. And the uh, reason for the primary uh, growth or, or commonality, if you will, of absinthe was the disease on the grapes. Correct. That's and right. People liked it. Yeah. And it was more alcohol than the wine produced. Yes. Became a little more exciting to some. And it's believed that absinthe has a, a psychoactive effect as well. Believed by who? For what reason? Well, there is a molecule, and this is the a molecule that occurs in Artemisia absinthium, or the grand wormwood, um, that is the essence and focus of the band, Barry. And that molecule is called thujone. And thujone uh, greatly resembles the THC molecule and is purported to fit in the same neuroreceptor as THC does in the human nervous system and body. And um, the ban is on, I think, um, 10 parts per million, or is it 10 parts per 100,000 or more of thujone? So. You say the ban is. Is it still in effect? Oh, yes. But absinthe can be purchased in a liquor store. Right. Well, okay. So at the time the ban was put into effect, there was no accurate way to measure the thujone content in the 1920s. And so all absinthe was, was banned, and in more than one country. So in this day and age, we have the means to measure thujone content. And so our federal government has agreed that if it's under 10 parts then you can make it. Uh, Crispin Cain, I, I understand that uh, you have a special interest in uh, distilling whiskey and distilling gin. Tell well, us about that. That's right. Um, I began distilling um, whiskey commercially in 2010, and I had experimented with whiskey before that. But uh, I worked for a special winemaker who knew something about fermenting grains and... Um, I love making whiskey. I love making whiskey an old-fashioned way by using enzymes and yeast to achieve uh, dry fermentation that allows me to use a direct fire still. And it happens to allow me to make a really wonderful whiskey. I'm making rye and bourbon. I'm doing a couple of different blends now of rye and wheat and corn and barley. And um, I'm making a corn whiskey this year as well. In the whiskeys that you make, for example, what sets them apart uh, from the mass-produced whiskeys? Well, Barry, um, there's basically two kinds of stills used to make whiskeys, and I'm using uh, an old-fashioned pot still from Cognac. Mass-produced articles are often made in a column still. The pot still allows me to double the still and carefully select the heart of the second distillation, whereas in a, a column still, it's a single pass through the still in an operation that would be continuous sometimes for weeks instead of a batch method where I'm doing two runs in a day. And the end result between what you make and what a column still produces? Column stills can produce a, uh, a fine liquor, but more often than not, the mass-produced article is, um, is of a different quality and usually a lower quality than what can be made with a pot still. When you say quality, mm -hmm. what do you mean? Okay, 
I can, with a pot still, make spirits that are very smooth tasting compared to mass-produced items in a column still. How would you describe something that is not smooth produced in the mass-produced items from columns? It, it, uh, uh, sometimes um, uh, mass-produced whiskeys can taste hot. They can uh, um, have a burning feeling in the mouth. Um, uh, by comparison, you, you could find that there's um, less of a pleasant taste in the aftertaste once you've swallowed it. And then the after effects. Uh, often mass-produced uh, whiskeys will have methanol and other undesirable uh, compounds in it that will give you a hangover. And finally made whiskeys in a pot still, well, one of our mottos is never a headache in a hogshead. And um, a hogshead is an old kind of a, a barrel, and it's kind of a joke, but... Um, you will find that, um, that the deleterious effects of alcohol, other than the intoxication itself, are lessened when consuming something from a pot still. Though federal regulation prohibits me from making health claims, I can tell you the experience will be more positive. Your personal experience. That's right. Not relying on any... Um Double-blind studies. Well, um, no, not relying on any double-blind studies, but um, but I, I would urge you to um, perhaps one day uh, compare these things side by side. Uh, Crispin, uh, there are several different kinds of whiskeys. What are the differences between them? So, um, straight whiskeys are whiskeys that have been aged in uh, new charred oak barrels for a minimum of two years. Um, bourbon, straight bourbon whiskey, must be made from three of four grains, corn, barley, wheat, and rye. It must be 51% a single grain, and usually that's corn. So usually the corn, malted barley, and either wheat or rye. Um, blended whiskeys are just that, blended whiskeys. Um, scotch, for example, is all made in, has to be made in Scotland. It is typically made from... Um, malted barley that has been toasted over a peat fire. The scotches that taste smoky get that smokiness from the malting process using a uh, peated kiln rather than gas or electricity or the sun. Basically, whiskeys that name a grain on the label have to be at least 51% a single grain. Though my rye whiskey is 100% whole grain malted rye. My wheat whiskey is 100% whole grain malted wheat. And these things are kind of rare in the world. Uh, before I started making 100% whole grain malted rye whiskey, no one else was. And a few others have stepped in because rye is so difficult to work with. What makes it difficult to work with? Uh, it's difficult to get it to ferment, to dryness, to where all the starches, glutens, and sugars have been consumed by the yeast and the enzymes. But I happen to be well-versed in fermentation of fruits and grain. Irish whiskey. Irish whiskey has to be made in Ireland, and typically Irish whiskeys are distilled three times and often made from rye and wheat and barley. So how do they differ from Scotch whiskeys? Um, most Irish whiskeys do not um, malt the grains with peat, though there's a few Irish whiskeys that are, and other than that, it's um, made in Ireland. And how about moonshine? Moonshine. Moonshine can be made from just about any fermented thing, fruit, grain, or otherwise. And sometimes moonshine is a combination of fruit and grains. But moonshine often refers to a thing that has been made at home 
and usually isn't taxed or licensed. So tell us about your favorite. My favorite Scotch whiskey, I'm pretty partial to Highland Park 18-year-old. That's a fine example of, of good Scotch, if there is one. Uh, there may be better out there. I haven't tried every whiskey in the world. Um, there are some um, brandies that I really like, Armagnacs and Cognacs that I like. Um, you know, whiskey is a particular thing, and there's only a few distilleries in the United States that are making whiskey in a pot still and double distilling. And, uh, and bless them all, because it's hard work. Um, one of the things that, that, that makes my whiskey my whiskey is I'm not buying any bulk spirits from another distillery and blending it in. I am 100% fermented, distilled, and aged in-house. I could be making a cheaper whiskey. By, and the law allows me to do this, but I'm, I'm keeping the whiskey pure. Well, Crispin Kane, senior distiller and co-owner of Greenway Distillers and American Craft Whiskey, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, uh, can you tell us about a eureka or an aha moment in your life that changed your life, your view of the world? You know, I've had several, but in relation to all of this, there was a day when I had worked 16 hours during harvest at a winery, and I stepped outside, and I felt full of life and full of energy. And at that point, after years of searching, I felt one with what I was doing and an integral part of uh, a great organic process. How old were you then? I was uh, 23. And that's a little more than half your life ago. That's right. And what would you like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life? I would love to continue making whiskey and gin and uh, saving the world on the side. And finally, uh, Crispin Kane, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? On my bed, bedside right now is uh, Writings uh, from Ancient Egypt by Toby Wilkinson. And it's published by Penguin and just came out last year. Crispin Kane, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. Crispin Kane is an artisan liqueur maker, distiller, and co-owner of Greenway Distillers and American Craft Whiskey, located in Redwood Valley, California. His website is greenwaydistillers.com. The book that Kane recommends is Writings from Ancient Egypt by Toby Wilkinson. This program was recorded on October 27, 2017. Over 630 archive editions on our website, www.radiocurious.org. They're all free to listen and download and share anytime, anywhere, as my gift to you. Our programs are published weekly, normally on Tuesday evening. 
Your comments, ideas, and suggestions are always appreciated, and we do enjoy hearing from you. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org. Postal mail is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.